Bold. And it's Adams put through by Bold. Would you believe it? That sums it all up. Season's greetings and welcome back to another episode of That Sums It All Up. Today we've got a Christmas special for you. We'll be talking festive fixtures, the COVID situation, catching up on all things Arsenal. There's been a lot going on. League Cup, Premier League, captaincy, all the rest of it and all sorts more. With me as always is Johnny Rosen, who's currently in Jamaica. Uh, good afternoon for me, but good morning for you, Johnny. Uh, how are you on this fine day in Jamaica? <laughs> I'm good. I'm feeling nice and relaxed. It's a lot warmer here than, than London. Yeah. Looking at a cool 28, 29 degrees. Oof. Got my, my swimming trunks on. Going to head to the beach after this. So I'm not complaining. I'm definitely not complaining. I've been out here for a week and a half. Got another week or so left. So we're just, just chilling out. But glad we made this work with the time difference. And... Yeah. Uh, and we've got lots to talk about because the last time we spoke, because when was the last time we spoke? Before the Liverpool game, I think. Yeah, last time we spoke was before the Liverpool game. Um, and I mean, even since then, you know, I think some probably quite a few of the things we were talking about pre-Liverpool are sort of what we'll be talking about again today. But there, there was a big dip. Um, I mean, it just sort of fluctuated. It went up and down, didn't it? We got battered by Liverpool. Then we won, I think, one or two games or beat Newcastle. Um, or yeah, I think we beat Newcastle and then obviously lost those two pretty disastrous games against United and Everton and it was all horrendous again and then we've picked it up again and I mean it's topsy-turvy I mean um, yeah we'll get into it but glad to hear that you're having a good time in Jamaica what's uh, how, how's COVID the COVID scenario out there because obviously I'm in London at the moment and uh, Omicron is uh, spreading spreading quicker and and uh, yeah, a greater rate than Thomas Party spreads his spreads his uh, octopus legs, mate, when he's winning the ball in the midfield. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's nuts. I keep reading about the figures in London. This is like hundred thousand cases a day yesterday, which was the highest ever. Yeah. Here it seems like you know a distant, distant myth or something. It's it's right. not not really with you in Jamaica. I mean, like you sort of are encouraged to wear masks if possible, like in shops, but no, you're not going into any shops as a tourist. You're just sort of hanging out in a hotel uh, or on a beach or by a pool. I mean, I think because you're outside 90% of the day, mm. people are less COVID, like scared or COVID conscious. Mm. And it also everyone who's here has had to have a negative test. So yeah, like a negative PCR test before they get on the flight and... All the hotels are, you know, all the staff from the hotels are always wearing masks, the sanitizing stations. But I think in terms of actual cases, I think there's, there's, there's not many on the mm. island comparatively. Good time to good time to get out yeah. of London, to be fair. Um, yeah. yeah. How have you, have you been managing? Because obviously, I mean, strange because I'm normally in Edinburgh and, and you're sort of closer to home. I know you've been working, but London and you managed to go to a few games and I suppose the tables have turned slightly. You're in Jamaica, long way away, and I've actually managed to get to a few games over the last week or so. Have you have you been managing to uh, keep up with football sort of while you've been in Jamaica? You've been watching much and all the rest of it? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I watched watched the Leeds game, watched the Sunderland game. The West Ham game, we were actually on the plane for, but I managed to have Wi-Fi on the flight, so I was able to sort of have Twitter 
like active. So I was keeping up with the scores and I had sort of live FPL on Safari and it was like 30 quid for the Wi-Fi for the whole flight. I was like, I'm definitely doing that if I can check my fancy team and check the Arsenal game. Um, so I've been able to be on top of everything. We've got Norwich's 10 a.m. my time uh, on Boxing Day and then Wolves' is 7.30 a.m. my time on the 28th. Assuming mm. those games don't get postponed, I'll be I'll be watching them because they're on TV here, and uh, well, Wolves is on Amazon, so I just watch on Amazon. But you know, it's it's fine. You get a VPN, you can sort of watch anything really. Yeah, um, came to be in the UK. Good. Well, that sounds great. Um, yeah, yeah. You've been, you've been to the games. How was the atmosphere at yeah. the games? Yeah. Well, I mean. I realised that uh, it was the first game when I went to the West Ham game. It was the first game that I'd been to since uh, Arsenal beat Bournemouth 1-0 back in the winter time of 2019 uh, when Unai Emery was still in charge and David Luiz scored a header. Um, that was it. I remember that game. I hadn't been since then. So I'd never seen an Arsenal side under Mikel Arteta at the Emirates. It had been literally... Over two years, it was October 2019, the last time I went. So I hadn't been back to the Emirates for two years. And I tell you what, when I got there uh, for the West Ham game, it was it was brilliant. I mean, the atmosphere on a Wednesday night, it, was ele- well, it wasn't electric, but it was seriously like, uh, it was seriously good. Um, I, I screwed myself hoarse. Um, obviously, we got a brilliant result in the end. Um, everyone was getting behind the team. I thought the atmosphere was great. I really enjoyed my experience being back. And of course, the you know, the implications of getting back into the top four and being West Ham, who are sort of a rival. And given what had happened over the last couple of weeks with the sort of underperformance or disappointment in the bigger games against our so-called rivals, I think that all contributed towards it. And the fact that, you know, it's Christmas time and I hadn't been to the stadium for ages. Sunderland game was also very fun, slightly different just in terms of it was a cup game and... Sunderland weren't very good, but the Sunderland fans were bar the initial booing when Arsenal took the knee, which was obviously a massive shame. Um, they they supported Sunderland very well, um, so they made for a good atmosphere, but it was slightly different, um, just a bit more chilled out because, you know, Arsenal was sort of, it, we, we were quite comfortable throughout the game. The stakes seemed less high, even though it was a cup game. But yeah, it was great to be back at the Emirates and kind of crazy surreal to be back twice in in the space of a week and um yeah very much enjoyed it really made me excited for the prospects of if i move back to london next year recently discovered that i've you know i don't have season tickets but i'm a silver member um so i can i can sort of get tickets earlier and you know i'm, I'm very excited to start going to going to games a bit more um i think it's it's great so yeah it's been, it's been good actually yeah it must be amazing i mean I remember when I went, I was back more recently than you. I think my gap was obviously enforced by the pandemic, but I went, the last time I went to before this season was when we beat United on Christmas Day. Oh, not Christmas Day, New Year's Day. Sorry, New Year's Day, when Pepe and Socrates scored. It was Arteta's first win. I, I think as Arsenal manager. And then, and then the game I returned to was the... The North London derby, no, the Norwich game. We beat Norwich one 0 Bamiang scored earlier this season, and then I went to the North London derby. And then I went. I've only been to three or four games actually this season because I was supposed to go to the Southampton game, and then I was going on holiday, and Omicron was breaking out, so I just knocked it on the head and didn't go. And 
I guess you've got that sort of luxury with season tickets where you there's no no pressure. Yeah. Going back. I'm hoping, hopefully we're not locked down. Hopefully games don't go behind closed doors. So I definitely am looking forward to going in the new year. And I don't know I, how you found it. It sounds like you found it similar to what I'm about to say, but the atmosphere in general has been really good at the Emirates. And I think our results and performances at home mirror that because we have, what, the best home record in the league now, jointly with City, I think, maybe even better or at least level with. And yeah. the Emirates, we've went through a few years of not not being a fortress, especially last season, we had a terrible home record. I think, you know, we lost to Wolves, we lost to Everton, we lost to Burnley, uh, Leicester, Villa. Well, like, we lost a lot of meaningless home games and drew a fair few as well. Uh, we've turned that around and it looks like we're, we're a really tough team to beat at home and it's it's really positive. I think... The crowd definitely comes for that. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, I think Arteta's been talking about it quite a lot in his press conferences, talking about the connection between the, the uh, our people, he, he calls us, um, so the fans and the players. And I think it's... It is a really important factor, especially after COVID and, you know, the fractured sort of fan dynamic post Wenger and Emery and all this sort of stuff. And it finally seems as if now, you know, behind this young team, we're able to get behind them. And there's this sort of understanding between the fans and the players and there's more patience. And look, I mean, as we've always said, results are king so you know if we lose a few games then I'm sure the home atmosphere wouldn't be great but even in the tougher moments earlier in the season when you know we got a draw against Palace I think and you know there was a narrow win against Norwich I think I wasn't there but from what I could make out the atmosphere was very sort of you know the fans were super behind the team in a way that you know they haven't always been for so many yeah. reasons over the last few years so yeah I've I found the the sort of home atmosphere and the and I think the fact that we've been in good form at, at home, really encouraging, especially I'd sort of forgotten about how dreadful it was last year. Obviously, all the games were sort of behind closed doors, but we were horrendous last year. Like, I think Arteta set a, an unwanted record for the most home defeats in a season or something like that. Um, you know, smashing all sorts of records for the wrong reasons. But look, we are we're almost midway through the season. And as you mentioned, we've got a Boxing Day fixture, um, COVID permitting against Norwich, um, who are firmly rooted to the bottom of the table, I think, as as they have been for pretty much the whole season. Uh, mm-hmm. They picked up a bit under Dean Smith, but I still don't think it will be enough, really, to, to keep them up. But, I mean, a couple of Boxing Day figures fixtures have already been called off. Obviously, we've got the Liverpool-Leeds game and the Wolves-Watford game. So we could see further postponements um, as and when they happen. I mean... We've been unaffected fixture-wise so far, but we were also one of the clubs, I think, at the at a meeting this week who expressed their sort of desire to have a circuit breaker, whereas a lot of other teams wanted to keep going. But we've had a few cases at, at the club. Um, Chambers most recently, and then we obviously had Albert Samuel Conga, Pablo Marie, I think Maitland-Niles, but I think he might have just been ill. Um, yeah, I think, yeah, he was ill and then it wasn't covid yeah, and then there might have been one more. I can't remember. But, you know, it's, it's in and around the club. There's been staff testing positive and stuff like that. So how are you finding the sort of uh, COVID dynamic? Because it's eerily reminiscent of last year. Obviously, fans are allowed in, but just the uncertainty of fixtures going ahead and, 
you know, um, players testing positive and trying to keep up with things. How are you sort of coping with with that, or is it not affecting you too much? I mean, I feel quite removed from it in all senses, just because, like, geographically, I'm sort of X thousand miles away. Yeah. Um, I think if I was in London right now, I would feel far more affected by sort of the tumultuous nature in which games are being postponed and whatnot. And it's it's very uncertain. We never really had this. It's, I think like I, last season, what there was an Aston Villa Newcastle game that got postponed because of COVID around like November time, I think. But there weren't that many games last season that got postponed. There are because a couple. COVID. There are a couple. I remember this time last year. I remember there was a Man City Everton game suspended yeah. or postponed. Yeah. I there was a Spurs game called off. There are a couple, but not as many as this. I mean, I think it boils no. down to you know the Premier League. I mean, I can't, the, the more I hear about it, the more the more I hear each manager saying, we just don't know what determines games being going yeah. ahead. It's, it's in, inconceivable that they haven't, at the beginning of the season, just been like, right, you get a certain number of cases or like staff testing positive or players pro- predominantly, then the game doesn't go ahead. I mean, the Arsenal game against Brentford at the beginning of the season, rumours are that we had more positive playing cases than you know Manchester United did when they got their request for the Brentford game um, to be postponed approved so it's just like where's the where's the sort of uh, consistency um, yeah so no I, I completely agree with that that's the thing I found most uh, puzzling about the last sort of two weeks with the COVID cases there's been no clear COVID criteria from the Premier League about what constitutes a postponement like, like if some clubs they might have four players have tested positive other clubs have seven and you know Chelsea were clearly very badly affected by COVID and then their game with Wolves still went ahead which they drew nil, which they drew nil nil to who seemed very very disgruntled that that game went ahead and you could see I don't know if well you could see by their Carabao Cup squad yesterday I know they got through against Brentford but it was depleted and they were playing a lot of these sort of under 23s or even under 18s uh, academy players so that that just really puzzles me why they've not published something for the public for the press for the clubs and said right if you have more than 14 outfield players and two keepers available your game the fact that you know, it has to go ahead uh, out of your first team score to say with your 25 players that are registered to the Premier League so it doesn't take into account your under 23 squad or your Premier League 2 squad or whatever it's called and, and then if you don't have that, then your game is postponed. But we need consistency because then you're sort of questioning the integrity of the league and the integrity of games because the Arsenal case is a great case. We had Aubameyang, Lacazette, Gabriel, oh, Gabriel was injured. William was still at the club at the time and had COVID. Ben White had tested positive COVID the game after. We had at least four players who mm. had positive cases. Our game just went ahead straight away. And look, I think can't speculate and say, look, if we had a full score, we didn't lose that game 2-0. But I think our odds of getting a result uh, dramatically increased because of just the huge disruption that caused our um, our sort of pre-game preparation. So that that I found confusing. But aside from from the lack of criteria, it's been it's just been quite weird seeing games postponed and you know, I'm not that affected by it because an Arsenal game hasn't been postponed yet, and touch wood, it doesn't. 
but I wouldn't be against a circuit breaker. I mean, what are your thoughts on a circuit breaker? I mean, it sounds as if like it should have happened. Um, I mean, it should have happened maybe already. Um, but if not, then I think a circuit breaker wouldn't be the worst idea. I don't think anything's going away. I think some of the clubs who've been most adversely affected, you know, Spurs and um, I think Leicester were quite badly affected. They're sort of now getting quite a few of their players back. And now we've seen Liverpool who have been quite badly affected with, you know, Van Dijk and Thiago and uh, who else was it? Someone else. Fabinho, um, yeah. So senior players and Arsenal starting to get it. So like every club's going to suffer with it. But um, I don't know. I feel like now maybe we've sort of missed the chance to have a circuit breaker just because... Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's maybe because of the sort of intense festive schedule as well. Like, there's not enough time to play all these games, and then the player, the question of player welfare comes up. You know, Jordan Henderson came out this week and saying that no one play- cares about the players, and you know, to a to a large extent, that's just true. You know, you're asking them to play. I think Arsenal are playing Norwich on Sunday at three o'clock, and then they've got Wolves on. Uh, a few days late, two days later on the 28th at 12.30. Leicester have got, uh, you know, a fully refreshed Liverpool side, albeit maybe with some COVID cases. And then they've got City two days later. You know, it's, it's kind of crazy, but especially in the current climate. So my thoughts are obviously player welfare comes first and I'd be in favour of whatever keeps everyone safest and, you know, postponements and uh, stuff can you know, happen and then that games are rescheduled after. But yeah, I guess we'll have to play it by ear and I guess sort of enjoy the football when it's on. And from an Arsenal point of view, we've been quite fortunate so far. So let's uh let's let's move on to Arsenal then. Um our latest game was a five one victory over Sunderland in the Carabao Cup quarter final. Um I was there as we spoke about. It was it was relatively comfortable in the end. I mean, there was a brief period towards the end of the, sec- the first half where Sunderland actually were playing really well. Um, we'd gone two 0 up, but they got a goal back, a really good goal, and we were not hanging in there. But it was sort of like, oh, come on, like don't let them back into the game. But we came out second half, and I think that's actually been another sort of quite promising feature of our performances recently across all like the Premier League as well. We come out second half and score an early goal like we did against West Ham. Um, which was refreshing. We sort of got a got a goal quite quickly after half time, and and sort of uh, blew the wind out of their sails. And um, yeah, so it was five one on the night. Uh, Eddie and Kessie got a hat trick, very impressive hat trick. Um, Nicola Pepe got a goal, and then Charlie Patino got a goal on his debut. Uh, the seventeen year old. There are quite a few things to talk about from this game. So I wondered if you wanted to start with Eddie Nketiah just because of his hat-trick um, and your thoughts on him as a player and his role at Arsenal, given that he's got less than six months on his contract, pretty much. Yeah, I thought, well, starting with the Sunderland game, he played really, obviously played really well. I was really happy just to see him get goals and good goals. I think a lot... A lot's been said of his goal-scoring record as, oh, he's just a tap-in merchant. Uh, he only scores from inside the six-yard box, which by and large is true, but that's a great attribute to have if you're a striker. And all three of his goals 
were really skillful in sort of the set poacher sense. I mean, the first goal sort of bounces off his thigh and goes in, but I think it was James Benrish talking about it on yesterday's Askcast, saying how he was watching Enketia, who was watching the flight of the ball hit holding, who's holding and heads it towards goal and it's saved by the Southern keeper. But Nketiah's tracking that ball movement the whole time and that's why he reacts quickest and he's exactly where the ball drops and puts it back in the net. And then the other two goals are just really, you know, top, top class finishes, especially that third goal, which is the little back flick, which I think he scored a goal like that earlier this season. Yeah, identical against Wimbledon. Yeah, was, wasn't against it? Wimbledon, that's it. So I like the thing that that gives him a bit more pedigree and, uh, you know, in terms of as a finisher, because he's not that highly rated, I think, across the borders as a striker by maybe both Arsenal fans and football fans. But great to see him score. And we need squad depth. We've just spoken about COVID, players testing positive. And Ketia clearly so far hasn't been affected by the virus. Aubameyang's not in the first team setup. And if Lacazette test positive or Martinelli or Balogun, you know, we need as many players as we can in that position. And it's great that they're on form. In terms of his contract situation, I think it's very clear that we're at an impasse. What I do think is, while he's publicly said, look, he wants game time, Arteta's acknowledged that publicly. Like That's the only sticking point in this contract is the lack of game time. I don't really see another Premier League club or maybe there's one or two, but there's not many other Premier League clubs where Nketi gets more game time than he's getting at Arsenal. And that's a bit of an issue for him because he's not seen, and again, James Vendor is talking about this, and I thought it was a really good point, but I don't know what manager is going to see him as a starting 90-minute Premier League striker. Mm. I mean, even if you go through sort of the teams in the relegation zone, which I think is Norwich, Newcastle, maybe Burnley right now, I don't see Nketiah starting ahead of Chris Wood, Callum Wilson or Timu Puki, Puki, quite mm. bluntly. So he's, he's sort of stuck in limbo as this sort of 20-minute man off the bench. And that might be, you know, is he then going to drop down to the championship and start there or go play abroad? Maybe he'd have better success rate in terms of getting minutes there. But in the Premier League, it's, I, I think he's in a really tricky situation. Yeah, I think you can, as you were saying that, my mind was automatically drawn to Joe Willock and the fact that, you know, he wanted to play and he was sort of in a similar position to Nketiah whereby he'd been on the scene for quite a long time. He was getting the minutes, he was scoring goals. Like He'd been given a chance at Arsenal, but it was clear that he wasn't going to start every single game or get enough at this stage of his development. So he was like, right, I'm going to go on loan. He did very well at Newcastle, signed on a permanent deal. He had the opportunities to start quite a few games. And since then, he's not really played that much. Um, He's been on the bench a lot. He's struggled for form. I mean, Newcastle have obviously struggled in general, but Nketiah would probably be slightly similar. He he needs the opportunity more than anything to start games. And then, you know, at these at another Premier League club, perhaps, then he can fight for his position. And I think that's the case at Arsenal. He's that maybe he doesn't get enough of, um, you know, opportunities to stake his claim. But by the same token, he has had chances in the first team. He played a fair bit last year. Um, he might play a bit more this season, more looking more and more likely given COVID and 
the factors that you were listing before. So I think it's a great thing to see him score a hat trick. Obviously, like there's a bit of a weird sort of I don't know agenda against him because he's not. I don't know. He's not the 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 best striker ever, basically, and because his game at this stage of his career is quite limited, I think people have sort of um, dismissed him as an option. They sort of uh, moved away from Enketia, but, you know, he's still a Highlander. He's got an exceptional record um, at goal-scoring youth level, you know, for the young England under-23s. And prior to that, he's got a really good record for Arsenal just in terms of minutes played and goals scored. He's an excellent finisher. He's a poacher. His overall game is developing. He's still young. He's 23, but he does need to play. So I don't know. I mean, I think prior to the whole Aubameyang debacle and the rest of it, I was like, right, we've signed Balogun to a long-term deal. Nketiah should not be coming on over Nicola Pepe. He needs to be sold in January, basically, if he's not going to sign a new contract. But clearly... Arteta rates him a lot, as we know. You know, he sort of was unwilling to let him go out on loan. I think it was last season after he came back from Leeds or whatever. He recalled him back. Um, clearly rates him a lot. And I think there is a space for him or someone like him in the squad because, you know, you Balogun probably goes out on loan in January or if not, then definitely next season. He needs a loan spell. Aubameyang, we don't know what's going to happen with him. Lacazette's most likely off in the summer or you know, he's not a long-term option. And Ketia does have a chance to be a long-term option in the squad, which will hopefully be competing in European football. Um, but will he be content with the sort of secondary role, which, as you alluded to before, is probably what he's going to get at most teams. Um, so I think it's an interesting one, but I think it's it's good for everyone. It's good for him. It's good for the club. It's good for everyone that he's scoring goals because we're going to need him. And I think, I do think his game has developed a bit more over the last year. I think people were upset by the fact that he came on over Pepe. But I think that spoke more to sort of the fact that Pepe hasn't been getting any game time recently more than sort of in Ketia. But, you know, he actually played quite well when he came on against Everton. He did miss that glorious opportunity, but, you know, he looked quite good and he's looked, decent since he's come into the fold and Arteta's always banging on about what brilliant professional he is and so I just think you know he's from Hailand what we just need to make sure we don't do is lose him on a free transfer and not be compensated um, because you know we've had a history of that and we've seen that we've actually done a bit better with sales of Joe Willock and Alex Awobi and you know he's not Hailander but you know Chamberlain a few years ago like we've actually sold well in that regard so it'd be a shame to regress from that um but yeah what do you think he'll stick around or what do you reckon i'm not convinced just because he's not going to get the game time he wants i think he really does see himself as a starter and without repeating myself i don't see i don't think arteta sees him as a starter and I don't think many other Premier League managers see him as a starter. The, the sort of analogy or comparison to Joe Willock is a good one, but it misses one critical point, which is Joe Willock had a phenomenally successful loan spell at Newcastle mm. before they went and spent £25 million on him. And Enketi has never had that. Mm. And that, you know, without that loan spell, Joe Willock's still an Arsenal player or he's out on loan in the Championship or somewhere. 
but he's not a 25 million pound player and his performances since have vindicated that you know he's not it was never worth 25 million pounds Newcastle an emotional fan base an emotional club he played probably the best football he's ever going to play in his career in those six months scored in seven or eight games in a row in the Premier League and they had to buy him as some show of faith to the club and to the fan base whereas if Nketiah had gone on loan to Crystal Palace or to Watford or to Burnley or goes on loan in the second half of the season and then scores half a dozen or so goals and helps keep them up it's a no-brainer. They sign him mm. probably on a free transfer. We get sort of a compensation fee or a tribunal fee. And um, and then he goes and starts from week in, week out. But without that foundation that Willock had, which was the loan spill, and Ket is in a much harder place, I think, from a from a recruitment perspective. Mm. I would I would like to see him. It doesn't mean I wouldn't like him to stay at Arsenal. I like Obviously, us having a squad build of Hailenders and academy players, I think Arteta is clearly much better at managing that type of individual than, say, the Abamyangs or maybe the more seasoned pros, um, potentially because there's more of an age gap there and there's more deference from those younger players towards Arteta, I'm not sure. But he's had a great relationship with Nketiah since he recorded from the Leeds loan and then kept him and he played a role. And, you know, you're right to bring up his goal-scoring record because it's really it's really good. You know, it's not amazing, but he's the record goal-scorer for England under-21s. He surpassed Alan Shearer. And um, and he's, I think he's got 19 or 20 first-team goals now for Arsenal in all competitions. He's got 10 goals in nine Carabao Cup games. And he's got a few Premier League goals, got a few Europa League goals, might have an FA Cup goal here or there. He has performed more than most young strikers. You think of Rian Brewster, you think of Dominic Solanke, two strikers that went for in excess of 15 million who had nowhere near the sort of pedigree um, that Nketiah had. And I don't think it's unfair to say that Nketiah really should be considered at a different level to those players who have subsequently gone on to do very little. But I would like to see it work out for him, I think. That's my main sort of thought is that whatever happens I want it to work out I think he'll always have Arsenal blood wherever he plays he'll always be liked and respected by the fan base and uh, and it'd just be nice to see him sort of starting regularly and playing because he's 23 and yeah he, he, he deserves that he's worked hard yeah I, I agree I think all we want to see is him play well and have a good career by the same token like Liverpool you know and like we did with Joe Willock last year, he played well. We saw, sold him at the right time. Too good an opportunity to turn down. If that is not going to be the case, I mean, we've put ourselves in a bit of a situation here where he can just run down his contract. But, you know, ideally, if he continues to sort of play a, a part this season and we say, look, like, you know, we'll give you a, a year or two years or something like that. And then, you know, we can generate some money from him because we should be selling him for something like 15, 20 million pounds, especially, you know, I mean, ordinarily we'd probably be looking to sell him in this window just because of, you know, take teams down the lower ends of the table. They're desperate for goals and he's a goal scorer. He's a poacher. We saw what Joe Willock could do, you know, sort of popping up with crazy goals that kept Newcastle up and, and Ketty could maybe do the same for a team down there, but we're not going to let him go now because 
AFCON and Aubameyang and all the rest of it. But yeah, let's move on from uh, Nketiah now. We've spent, spent a fair bit of time on him. Um, so, I mean, apart from that, we'll round up the, the Sunderland game. I mean, it was good to see Nicola Pepe back on the pitch for, you know, it had been a while. Um, he, he got a goal, he got a couple of assists, some lovely tricks, some good nutmegs, some also very frustrating moments too, as there always is. But good to see him playing again. And I think, you know, clearly there's been a case of sort of attitude issues or not applying himself. We've heard that it's sort of, you know, he struggles for consistency in training, but you, we see it in games as well um, in terms of applying himself. But it looks as if he was he was on board um, with the sort of the team the other day, which I think is all you all you can ask for and certainly what Arteta demands from his players. So I'm sure we'll see Pepe a fair bit over the next few games before he goes off to AFCON or maybe just the next game, <laughs> I guess. Um, but it was good to see him on. I think Balogun, it was clear to see that He's he needs a loan big time, um, and I think the it, it was easier to distinguish between where him and maybe Inketia are in terms of their career development, just in terms of experience and age and all the rest of it. Leno, it was good to see him back in goal. Um, he'd been injured and obviously lost his place to Ramsdale. I think he was all right in goal, had a decent performance. Cedric Suarez, uh, yeah, I mean he's in great shape. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. ripped but the sooner we say goodbye to him and get an adequate stand-in for Tommy Asu I think the better I don't like Cedric Suarez as a right back I don't know if you have strong opinions on it but I I, just, I I've, got, I've got a weird soft spot for Cedric I don't know why I think maybe because I'm as you know a bit of a transfer nut and I'm, I'm obsessed with transfers I always find like I have a weird soft spot for basically any footballer Arsenal signed on a deadline day. Yeah. And we signed Cedric on deadline day in the January window in 2019-20. And I just remember it sort of came out of nowhere and I loved it because it was just another transfer that I could sink my teeth into. <laughs> and, uh, and since then, I've always just liked, liked him. I think he came on for his debut and scored a cracking like half volley from 25 <laughs> yards against Norwich. Um, it was really weird. And actually, every time he plays for Arsenal, whether he comes on and has sort of a 30-second cameo in the 94th minute or starts a Carabao Cup game, he's always got sort of four or five photos on his Instagram being like, great performance from the team. And he's... I, I, I don't think he's bad for the squad or anything. I think he tries his hardest. I think he's bad for the team on the pitch. That's the issue. Yeah, maybe, maybe on the pitch. But I think we've had worse players in recent memory on the pitch than Cedric. Oh, I know, but I think... Some who are still in the squad, like uh, said Kalasnach. Yeah, um, but... And he, he won the, look, he won the Euros with Portugal. He captained Southampton. He's not a bad footballer and he definitely brings some sort of experience to the dressing room, even if it's not on the pitch. He's, he has won things and been, you know, more successful than pro- most footballers will be in their career. Do we, do we need to keep him? Definitely not. Is he an adequate number two for Tommy Asu? Definitely not. But I quite like seeing him sometimes. <laughs> he also went through the phase where he had like a, a mask on the pitch for a while, well, which was which was. We good. signed him and and he was injured. He was like a bit of a Kim Kalsum. You know, he didn't yeah. play for months. Um, 
And, you know, we gave him a four-year contract, having then signed him on loan when he was out of favour at Southampton. It was one of those weird sort of maybe Keir Jarabjian-driven signings. And look, I, he seems like a nice guy. I remember watching uh, last year during lockdown, he took over Arsenal's like YouTube channel or something. He did a like a tour of his house and he was eating nice food with his wife and he seemed very sweet, very professional, clearly takes his work seriously. Arteta likes him. But every time I watch him play, whether he comes on or starts games, I mean, I remember last year there was a period where he actually played quite well. He got a couple of assists. He scored a goal, as you said. But defensively, I think he's so he's a he's a liability. He's always seems to be running back on his heels. Um, he gives the ball away a lot. He was slipping over the place, all over the place against uh, Sunderland. I think he came on against West Ham. He didn't look great, um, or Leeds was it? Um, yeah, so Leeds. yeah, I mean, I don't feel comfortable seeing him on the pitch. I'd far rather if Maitland-Niles was available, you know, him slot in at right back or something like that. But look, um, let's leave the Cedric Suarez <laughs> conversation there. So we've got Liverpool next round. Um, I mean, as it stands, it's two legs. There's talk of it maybe turning into a one-legged affair. And it would, I thought for some reason it would be at Wembley. Should we, should we briefly just mention Charlie Patino as well? Oh yeah, big time. Sorry, I completely what, forgot. What a- what a fantastic moment for him. I think mean, he was born 10 games into the Invincible season. And we're not exactly old. We're both in our early 20s, but it definitely still makes us feel a bit old. Yeah. Um, and he's just, look, he's done his hype and expectations no favours by scoring with his first shot as an Arsenal player wearing that sort of legendary 87 number that Bukayo Saka made his debut in. The now old, comparatively old Bukayo Saka compared to Patino. But it was amazing. Really, like, couldn't have been happier for him and yeah. team at Hairland who have brought him through. And I think, I think there were some worries, either justified or not, that we've had Smith Rowe who's shone and... Saka's shone and to a lesser extent in Ketia and Willock's gone out and fetched 25 million and Balogun's clearly really talented and just needs to now get experience at men's football. And then there was like a bit of a drop-off in the academy and who was the next player coming through and Omari Hutchinson still very young and Miguel Aziz is, looks great but he's not had the best loan spell at Portsmouth and I think the goalkeeper Arthur Onkwonku looked quite shaky in pre-season in men's football and Patino's really been the one everyone's talked about but hasn't had any sort of first-team exposure at game level. And to see him just sort of breeze in, you know, play a few nice passes, he got really got a really bad challenge, like two minutes after he was brought on. I don't know if you saw it, but he was like really taken out by one of the Sunderland defenders and he was just up straight away, breezing around, scanning around the pitch and then popped up with a goal. I think he looks like another real gem coming out of our academy yeah and it's crazy to think he's you know he's played for the under 23s this season but he's 17 years old um i mean you can tell how young he is just by looking at him i saw on bakaya saka's instagram story and like you say it's crazy to think that saka you know he was walking around after the game and he was acting like i mean he is one of the senior players now in a way but you know he's he was acting like he was sort of you know one of these like you know, uh, 29-year-olds given the day off in a Carabao Cup fixture. And the reality is, <laughs> Saka's 20 years old. Um, but yeah, it was a lovely moment for Patino. The crowd were going crazy. Um, everyone was singing his name. 
got a really good reception when he came on, even better when he scored, obviously. Um, so one to keep an eye on. You know, we've seen his impressive cameos. Um, well, sorry, not cameos, like uh, clips all over YouTube for the under-23s. And he scored an excellent goal against Manchester United when Dean Henderson was in goal and Phil Jones was playing. So, you know, there's hopefully plenty to come for him. But as you say, it's important maybe not to overdo the hype just because he is so young and he's still got plenty of development to do. But as we have seen with Arteta, I think maybe he is a manager who knows how to manage these young players in a really sort of productive way. I mean, let's move on now to talking about Arsenal's Premier League form. And I think you know, there's only one place to start other than the fact that we've, we've won our last three games. We beat Southampton, um, then we beat West Ham, and then we beat Leeds, conceding only just one goal in the process, scoring, what is it, four, six, nine goals in three games. So look, Gabriel Martinelli, come, come, come into the team. Um, slowly but surely, you know, he scored a really good goal against Newcastle a couple of weeks ago. And in Aubameyang's absence, he's started started a few games and, and with the Smith-Rowe being injured as well. And he's looked exceptional. He scored a brilliant goal against West Ham. He scored two more excellent goals against Leeds. And testament to maybe the way in which he's being managed because so many people have been crying out for him to play more and all the rest of it. And, you know, Arteta's managed him and, harness that sort of raw talent hopefully into into someone who is is learning a lot and is now ready to contribute for for the team on the pitch yeah he's been a revelation he's like we all knew or know that he's got the talent the raw talent we saw it when he signed he's still really young 20 years old had really really troubled season last season with his injuries and I think if he didn't have those injuries we wouldn't really be having this conversation now because he would have cemented himself more but look it's just again it's one where Arsenal fans we need to have patience with him because he's 20 years old he's two three years ago he was only playing in the fourth division in Brazil it's a great piece of recruitment he's outstanding his tenacity his ambition his sort of raw pace his finishing that first goal he scored against Leeds on the, I don't know if it was on the weekend or not, but the other day. I don't know if you've seen the, the bench cam footage of Arteta like motioning, curling his foot on the sideline while he's seeing Marte run out to strike the ball. And he knows exactly what he's going to do. He puts it away. That finish against West Ham was very sort of Henri-esque. I heard, I think it was on the Arsenal Vision pod, they compared it to sort of Theo Walker, who was also a very good sort of finisher while sprinting. And then that the second goal against Leeds was, Leeds was brilliant because the composure to take a few touches, hold off the man, dink it over Melier, and also to stay on side initially when he spotted that the Leeds fullback Cody Drama was out of position sort of made eyes with Xhaka, great assist from Xhaka as well, um, who's looked pretty solid game by game. Now he's back in the team. Um, it's it's really good. It's really, really promising. I think he's going to be a genuinely very significant Arsenal player in the seasons ahead, along with Saka and Smith, Rowe and Erdegaard. And it's just sort of giving them all time. And I, I, hope, I hope Arteta's learned from Guardiola's handling of Foden, 
which has been impeccable as to how to handle Smith Rowe, Martinelli and Saka. I think he did it a bit with Saka, if you remember, during the FA Cup run, he sort of signed his new contract and then they barely played a minute of football in the last half dozen games of the season. I don't even think he got on in the FA Cup final. So maybe just handling their minutes is what is what he's doing and he's doing a really good job because they're all they're all performing fantastically. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, we've seen it with Martinelli. Um and I've always been very a lot of people are like get Martinelli on and, and it's clear to see why people have been why have been sort of calling for that because he's been so impressive these last few games. But that wouldn't have happened if he came in straight away. You know, it takes time and I think as everyone's been talking about putting gears into his game um, because before he'd sort of come on and be running around like a sort of rabbit in headlights, you know, he'd been sprinting around the place and now it looks as if he's, he knows when to go. He knows when to stop. He, he's threatening with his runs in behind. Um, and I like the fact that, you know, he's, he, you know, he's going to be so fresh. He's got loads of energy. He's been not been playing loads. Smith Rowe now has been not had to been rushed back from his injury. Um, even though, you know, his, his goals have been crucial to us this season. He scored what? He's our top scorer. He's got like seven and 12 or something like that since he started scoring. Um, but he hasn't had to be rushed back. He's managed to have a bit of a break. You know, he's played a lot of football this year. Um, first time he's done so in his career. Saka is slightly different, you know, but he has had a few rests. You know, he's had the occasional sort of muscle injury and he's sat out a few games he got a rest in the week i remember he was sat down for pepe towards the back end of last season which was quite nice um but you know moments will come hopefully when he gets a bit of a rest um but yeah i think it's great that all these young players are sort of developing together and uh, experiencing this together um i think it's so exciting as as fans as well but um yeah saka got the goal against leeds um I think he was our best player, most threatening player against West Ham in the first half, especially. Um, and, you know, he was excellent in that Newcastle game as well. The driving force of our threat, he obviously got the goal and then went yeah. off. This was a few weeks ago now. So he's actually been in really good form, um, looking really threatening on the right-hand side, taking lots of shots, taking people on, creating chances. I think he's been superb. Um, it's crazy, crazy to sort of label him as the old guard at the moment, the sort of consistent uh, attacking threat. And he's still only 20 years old, as we keep saying. Smith Rowe um, came on as he did against West Ham, got a late goal, brilliant finish again, um, clinical sort of into the corner. Um, it's just so good to see him recapture sort of the goal scoring form of his younger days. Um because he scored a lot when he was in the Arsenal youth setup, and he sort of lost that a bit maybe when, um, you know, he was injured and that sort of stuff. But he's scoring a lot of goals now, which is brilliant. Erdegaard's chipping in with more goals, Martinelli too. So finally now we're getting all these goals from sort of positions where we've lacked big time over the last few years. I mean, I know Pepe's, you know, he scored a lot. He was our top scorer last year, but... Bamiyang's been shouldering that burden. I mean, Lacazette also scored a few, a good number of goals last year, but goals from sort of central midfield, central attacking midfield, you know, you sort of creative players. I mean, it's invaluable. And I think to see especially Smith Rowe and Erdegaard to sort of be heading towards hopefully, you know, near to double figures um, come the end of the season. Last time we had that was probably Aaron Ramsey or something like that. And, you know, every good team, 
I mean, I love the I love getting goals from midfield. I think it's great. So um, yeah, Odegaard's looked great recently. Smith Rowe not been playing many minutes, but come on, looks dangerous, threatening on the counter attack. Lacazette sort of knitting it all together, looking quite good. Should have scored a couple against Leeds, really. Um, any other words on those sort of young forward players before we look to the rest of the team and sort of how we've been performing defensively and in midfield? No, I think you, you've summed it up really well. It's, it's been really promising just to see them pick up. Uh, not really where they left off, but it was. I think they were all really disappointed by those defeats to Everton and United. And then the whole Aubameyang situation sort of exploded in between the Southampton game, the Everton game, and or the Everton game and Southampton game, and then the West Ham game, and it sort of it could have gone either of two ways. The well, season could have just completely hit the fan and exploded with sort of stripping the captaincy, and if we hadn't scored any goals. But I think to go out there, perform well, perform consistently, and get three wins. It's a shame we didn't keep a clean sheet against Leeds, but. We've looked, we've looked really good. And Erdegaard, who you mentioned briefly, has been the one who's sort of been knitting it all together very slowly and is actually the slightly older head out of those four. You know, he's 23. He's the captain of Norway. He's been in the spotlight really since he was a 15-year-old and joined the Real Madrid. He had a very successful loan spell, obviously, with us. And before that, with La Sociedad, he's played in the Champions League. He's... He's probably the one that you are hoping off the pitch is really taking the reins in that little group and saying, look, keep it up, but improve here and your movement there. And you can see that he's got an understanding with all of those players now. I mean, him and Saka have always had a good connection on that right-hand side, but his assist for Smith-Rowe against Leeds was fantastic. That out-to-win run from Smith-Rowe, the little chip pass over over the centre-back. And... um, and yeah, I think it's really, really promising. I don't quite know how we fit all four of them into a starting eleven yet with Lacazette because I don't know if Martinelli is ready physically and mentally to play that back-to-goal position, which takes a lot of time. And obviously, the striker is also our number one priority and that will affect the dynamic, whether we sign a striker, let's say a Calvert-Lewin-esque striker in January or summer, again, it's going to have an impact on Smith Rowe and Martinelli and, and Saka. I think Saka is probably going to be the least affected because he's the most secure and mm. the most established first team player. But um, for the time being, fingers crossed, none of them pick up COVID or get injured. And, and I think we will be okay in the next few games. Yeah, I think it's great, as you say, there to have at the moment you know, it's quite set that that front four, I mean, Martinelli's been playing excellently, so you don't drop him. Saka, you're not dropping. Odegaard, you're not dropping. Lacazette, as long as he's got the energy, you're not changing because you need, I think, a bit of, need to make the ball stick and a bit of seniority. And why would you move Martinelli to centre forward when he's playing really well on that left-hand side? And I think it's quite a thing with, you know, if there is a future of him progressing into a centre forward, you know, a lot of them tend to start on that left-hand side and and sort of drift in. And that's, you know, where his danger comes from, sort of drifting in into that inside left-hand channel and running in behind um, in the same way that sort of we've seen Aubameyang do in the past, or rather, you know, we've wanted Aubameyang to do it on occasions where he hasn't quite been able to do it. Um, not to take away from the fact that when he has 
you know, scored so many goals for us. It, it, a lot, a lot of it has been from that inside left channel. Uh, even if he has been, sort of, we've been wanting him to start on that uh, in the centre forward role. He sort of gets the um, he gets the goals from the left hand side. So I think at the moment you sort of leave it how it is, and Erdegaard is nailed on there, and Smith Rowe can come in on that left hand side or in centre attacking midfield depending on injuries and rotation and stuff, you know, we'll see all of them. We'll probably see Pepe as well um, and maybe Nketiah the next week because of, you know, the, the the small gap in between the games. And we've got AFCON coming up and, you know, we've got plenty of cup games to get into. So, you know, I think it's great that they're all playing well at the moment, fit and firing, especially because of the Aubameyang situation, which we'll get onto in a second. Um just a, the rest of the team. I mean, Tommy Asu, I think, has been sensational this season. So solid um, defensively, excellent sort of in our in our structured sort of attacking play. Um, I think he's built up a really good partnership with Saka. Um, I think he gets up and down the pitch really well. He's brilliant in the air. He's really good sort of defensively. So I think all round, what a brilliant signing. Uh, Thomas Partey has looked a lot better. Um, surprise, surprise, since Jack has come back into the team. Um, a lot more competent on the ball, not doing it all himself. I think that's great as well. Slight concern with Ben White's sort of recklessness. Um, you know, he didn't have a good game. I think it didn't look great against Liverpool or against Manchester United. And I know quite a few players didn't, but then he slid in recklessly in a Mustafi-esque fashion um, in the Leeds game, gave away the clean sheet and the penalty. Wasn't a fan of that. But I guess he is still quite young and I don't know, but he needs to eradicate that from his game. I'm hoping that, you know, post Leeds game, regardless of the win, the coaching staff sit him down and like, right, you, you don't need to do that. Stop doing that. Um, likewise with Granite Xhaka, I thought that was a really nasty challenge that he put in in the Leeds game. Um, could have swung the game if he had been sent off, could have been sent off for something like that. He went in with no intention to sort of win the ball. It was spiteful and hot-headed and I don't like seeing Arsenal players sort of tackle like that. So I think there are a few things that are still, you know, there to, to worry about. But overall, I think the team's in great shape. Um, and yeah, I think, as you say, it was really important to bounce back from those Everton and United losses. Um, and we go into Christmas time in the top four. And we haven't been in the top four for so long. And even if that's because of few teams having their games postponed. I think it feels great and sort of testament to the team and Arteta from sort of where they were at the beginning of the season. Um, is there anything that you wanted to add just on sort of where we are and um, the performances and the team before we sort of talk about Aubameyang? Yeah, I think, you know, I was going to echo what you said about Ben White's diving in. Again, something he needs to eradicate. If, if it's still happening in a year or two's time, we've got an issue. But I think at this stage, he's young. It was a stupid tackle. Sort of move in, move on, and hopefully it's dealt with on the training ground. I found Ramsdale, Ramsdale and his acting afterwards was quite funny. Yeah. Ramsdale clearly knew that he'd made no, a <laughs> But no, Tommy Asu is really the one that's taken, I think, us all by surprise. He's been amazing. And I didn't really, like, it didn't click in my head that he's played every minute of Premier League football he's been available for until he was taken off against Leeds. And I was like, that's really impressive. He's just sort of come in from 
the Italian league, a mid-table Italian team. I don't know, you know, how good his English was before he joined, how good his English is now. Seems pretty competent, but he just sort of slotted in, formed a very good relationship with Ben White very quickly, a very good relationship with Bukayo Saka. He's our outball, Sanya 2.0, big in the air, physical, quicker, I think, much quicker than I thought when we signed him. I, you know, that, that sort of snippet against Leeds where he really sort of astutely gets his body in front of, I don't know if it's Gerhardt coming in at the back post to stop him getting it then runs and gets the ball on the sprint and then knocks it past Stuart Dallas and sprints past him and then Dallas brings him down. I didn't know he had that pace in his locker over sort of a 10-yard burst. He's been great. He has been really, really great, along with, I don't want to rank our signings because it's too early and I personally don't think you can really ever judge a signing properly until they actually leave the club. Mm. But if I had to say uh, who's like signing of the season being, for us, it's got to be you know with along with Ramsdale, it's it's, it's Tommy Asu, and I mean they've all been great. I can't really fault Ben White. Erdogan took a bit of time to get up to speed, but he's been fantastic for the last few months. Lokonga, Tavares, none of them have really put too many you know made too many mistakes. But Tommy Asu, I just yeah you know, hope he's not got anything too bad or he's not too injured because we want him straight in for Boxing Day and then straight again for Wolves and then again for City on New Year's Day. He's an integral, integral start part of our starting eleven, And he's got to be you know, very much one of the first names on the team sheet. So good on him, but hopefully he's not too badly injured. Yeah, well, then we'll see your favourite, probably uh, Portuguese right back, back on the pitch. But no, I think Tommy Asu has been... Yeah. Tommy Asu's been exceptional. And I think hopefully it's just a case of muscle fatigue. I think Arteta was said afterwards that he'd been struggling in the week just because of the sheer number of minutes he'd played. Um, and I think, you know, he his technical ability, he, he can switch it with both feet. He's quick. He's excellent defensively. He's a warrior. You know, he really doesn't mind getting, getting stuck in. He's adapted well to the English game. He reminds me a bit of a far nicer less brutish version of, of Branislav Ivanovic in a weird way uh, for Chelsea, just in terms of his solidity. And, you know, he's actually surprisingly all right going forward. Um, and, you know, for example, I think back to, I mean, go back to that Everton game where Ben Godfrey literally stamped on his face, got up, you know, bleeding from the cheek, just didn't really, didn't really affect him at all. So, you know, I think he has been such a brilliant signing and, you know, my mind is is drawn back to that it's really embarrassing video of one of these Sky Sports pundits, not even pundits, one of these presenters uh, on on the deadline transfer deadline day or something like that, saying like, "Oh, I've just got this from one of these agents saying that Tommy Asu's been been advertised to all these Premier League clubs and no one wants him, no one knows what he is. Why have Arsenal signed him?" Um, and I think he's just proven him so wrong. I think uh, Ian Wright retweeted that the other day sort of demanding a, an apology because Tommy Asu has really been excellent and I think it's ironic the fact that I think Arsenal I don't know quite which way it was around but apparently Spurs and Arsenal were in for a right back it was between Emerson Royale and Tommy Asu in the end Spurs opted for Emerson Royale and we went for Tommy Asu 
I think maybe Spurs turned down the chance to sign Tomiyasu and favoured Emerson and we sort of did the opposite maybe. And it looks as if, I mean, I, I don't think Emerson's sort of kicked on really massively at Spurs yet, but I think Tommy Asu's really fitted what we've wanted from a right back so far. So credit to Edu and Arteta for identifying the right type of player with the right sort of physical and footballing attributes, but also his, his professionalism and his, uh, you know, his clear sort of contribution to, to the culture, um, as we'll get on to. Um, look, we can't, we, we've mentioned him a few times and it's obviously been, I think, over a week now, about a week and a half since uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang was stripped of the captaincy. Um, we haven't heard much, update-wise, um, from the point of which it happened. Um, Arteta's been asked in the press quite a few times. He says he's not selected for this squad. He won't be involved in the Boxing Day game. And then it's Af- AFCON, so I presume he'll be representing Gabon uh, during AFCON and then we'll see where we stand and I'm sure things will emerge when he's on international duty and January transfer window and the rest of it. Um, Where do you stand on the whole thing right now? Because I think everyone's entitled, everyone will react to this in different ways depending on their relationship with or their feelings towards Aubameyang, their feelings towards Arteta, their feelings towards the captaincy in general. I think there's so many ways to look at it, but I know where I stand on it. Um, I'd be interested to see where you stand on it before we sort of get into maybe just, just discussing why he's been stripped of the captaincy um, and sort of where we can see this going, perhaps. I think you're right. I think mean, wh- where you stand on Aubameyang sort of dictates how you stand on this. I love Aubameyang. I, he's one of my sort of favourite Arsenal players of the last five years. I remember just being absolutely enthralled when we when we signed him from Dortmund on I think it was deadline day in 2018, and um, and I remember him scoring his first goal against Everton, which would have been VARD today. So but, outside. <laughs> it was a great game in which Ramsey scored a hat trick and Mkhitaryan got a hat trick of assists, and what a what a day that was. And I and since then I just was like I can't believe Pierre Mkhitaryan plays for Arsenal. It was sort of one of those um, moments for me. And he's I desperately want him to get to 100 Arsenal goals and be a centurion. I think he's on 91 or 92 at the moment. And so I was really shocked when he was stripped, you know, from the captaincy because his form hadn't been great. Uh, which doesn't obviously play into it. And he's had a few disciplinary issues. I think basically they all centre around timekeeping um, since Arteta's taken the helm as manager. But I, I, I thought maybe it was too harsh a harsher punishment. I, I'm sympathetic to the view that maybe, you know, naturally Aubameyang's not a captain. And actually during the first lockdown, I think Bellerin often represented Arsenal uh, as sort of, the player's captain when he was interacting with sort of Henderson and Maguire and whoever, you know, Fernandinho, whoever the captain is at City and Chelsea and whatnot. But, and so maybe there's something for what he's not got that responsibility now. Maybe he'll sort of thrive on the pitch because he could just focus on goal scoring and not being the, the leader. But actually, it was it was sad because it didn't you know his Arsenal career didn't need to 
if it ends like this or take this downturn. It didn't need it. He's been a great player for us. I can't really fault him. He, you know, for two or three seasons, he kept, he kept Arsenal competitive almost single-handedly. He scored 30-plus goals two seasons in a row, single-handedly won us the FA Cup and the Community Shield. And, um, and it's a real, real shame. And the response to leave him out of the squad for the last three or four games, I can only imagine is because his reaction to being stripped of the captaincy must not have been adequate or what Arteta envisaged because it does seem very harsh when you think all I know and all I think we know is that he went to France with the club's permission. Yes, he returned a day late. Yes, there's confusion over, you know, I don't think he had the necessary COVID tests or whatever. But look, we know last year he had to take time off because his mum was unwell. I think he went to pick his mum up this time. And I don't know what, it's not like he went to Ibiza or Dubai or Dubai to have sort of gold-leafed steak fed to him on a, on a knife like William did. He, you know, I'm, I'm open and sympathetic that it was a family-orientated trip. And I, I, I almost think it was a bit of an overreaction just going off of what we know and especially to sort of banish him from the first team. Unless he's, re- he's reacted really badly and he's had a massive bust-up, which has not been reported that he's had. It's been reported that he's training by himself and he's away from the first team until AFCON and then we're sort of open to offers, but we're not trying to sell him. It's just, I, I, overwhelmingly, I'm just upset, really. I think he, he deserved better, we deserve better, and actually it's a really sad situation. Yeah, I think that's actually a really, you know, I, I sort of have come at it from a slightly different, uh, I, I've had a slightly different reaction to you, but I think a lot of what you said does resonate with me big time it is a sad affair i mean i was i was shocked when i heard the news um i wasn't shocked to hear that he'd been dropped on a disciplinary breach i mean yes can you deal with it differently but i think with arsenal we've seen so many times where information gets leaked and there's been all sorts of you know these cultural sort of fractures within the club where different players are given different treatments and and maybe there is a place for that for some players and some clubs but i think this was this ultimately proved to be the straw that broke the camel's back um he that must have been it you know and i think arteta has had you know reported incidents there's been about four i think this was the fourth that was made public uh, sort of indiscretion of of uh, a disciplinary breach um where he's you know been late or not attended a COVID test or, you know, not reported to training at the right time, blah, blah, blah. Maybe it's harsh, but I think clearly, I don't know. I think, I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. I, I'm I'm sad in the way in which it's happened and I wish it didn't happen. I wish he could have stayed captain, but if it's going to be an issue, which it clearly was, you know, it was, it wasn't maybe uh, setting the right example to, you know, we've got the youngest team in the league. Are you protecting the club's future by sort of setting an example? You don't want to make an example of Aubameyang, but, you know, he's got a responsibility as a captain. Like whether you're a sort of person who's late 
or whether you make mistakes like that, you've got to work on it. You've got to show that you care. You've got to show that you're willing to put your responsibilities as captain and highest paid player and talisman first. And I know that he's had family issues and all the rest of it, but by the same token, I think, I mean, as the athletic reported, Arteta has been very sympathetic, I think, to his family circumstances, very sympathetic to his sort of different way of doing things made different allowances for him, but also, you know, been very clear that, you know, the team sort of comes first. And I think, I mean, one of probably the most telling factors of maybe why this is not that big of a deal or rather uh, it's not that much of a shock is the way in which the team have responded. I mean, even when you think of the likes of Lacazette and, uh, and Nicola Pepe and, you know, his close friends in the dressing room, they look as if, it hasn't really affected them. There's been no sort of show of support for him and that we would have seen in the past when players have been exiled and, you know, we get certain factions of the dressing room sort of showing support on social media. There hasn't been that. So I think it maybe has been a unanimous sort of decision made whereby, look, this is the standards we're setting at the football club now. Everyone needs to abide by them as a minimum and then you get onto the individual differences of each player. But I think, ideally, you know, it's water under the bridge and hopefully they can come to some sort of resolution. But at the moment, it's anyone's guess if that's going to happen. It doesn't look like it's going to happen. But, you know, imagine if Aubameyang comes back and he's unburdened from the responsibility of being our chief goal scorer and captain and everything else. And he can just, you know, he's a player driven by emotion and having fun. And I think clearly the sort of role in which, or the importance by which the captaincy is, now it's becoming an important thing for us. Maybe he was not the right guy moving forwards, but yeah, as as with you as well, maybe it was a bit harsh and it's a shame that this sort of huge debacle has uh, come to light because maybe it wasn't necessary. And I think that's what most people were sort of upset with. Um, but yeah, I do think by the same token, when you strip it down, it's like, if you're captain, you've got all these young players coming through, you're trying to reset the culture, you're moving away desperately from sort of this really sort of rotten kind of core within the club of people not abiding by the same rules and getting preferential treatment and where, where that leads to people, uh, where that leads, sorry, for the club. I think it's so important to set the right example and to live by the same rules. And if Aubameyang was sort of, not even making mistakes, but maybe outwardly sort of, living above those I think it's not a good look and I think you've got to do better so I'm I'm sort of I do back Arteta in the way that I saw I don't know if you watched his press conference after it was announced but he did look like palpably upset and sort of really let down and not you know he wasn't taking any pleasure in it a lot of people sort of dismissed Arteta as an author authoritarian like oh he takes pleasure in exiling players and you know asserting his authority and maybe he does to an extent but I don't think it was some sort of you know power play move I think he genuinely has acted out of his what he feels is the best interests of the club and I think as someone who quite backs Arteta I think I sort of yeah, I lean towards the side of this was probably the right call, but I guess you are judged. That's only because Arsenal are winning games at the moment. If Arsenal weren't winning games right now, it's the worst decision in the world. But forwards yeah. scoring goals and, you know, Aubameyang wasn't playing that well and 
you know, it, it looks like a decision that maybe won't come back to bite Arteta, but that's a big if because we'll see. Um, wow, yeah, I mean, kind no, of. No, I, I just last on that. Look, you're right. Time will tell whether I don't necessarily think it's it's as binary as this decision was either right or as a, or, or wrong. It's it's very multifaceted and very complex. From the from sort of the dressing room standpoint to the fans receiving it, to how how sort of the effect it plays off on the other players is what I mean by the dressing room standpoint. Abamyang's personal reaction to our sort of visceral reaction as fans. If you know we've gone and we scored nine goals since he last put an Arsenal shirt on, so we're sort of sitting here thinking like, right, it's fine because it's not the end of the world. Martinelli's come in, he scored three, Lacazette's looking great, Smith Rowe's still scoring, Gabriel's popping up with a header every now and then, Saka's looking great. But it's more just the sense that really his Arsenal career didn't need to have this sort of black mark on it. And I'm surprised. I'm just surprised. Fine, strip him of the captaincy. It's very clear that there's these non-negotiables in Arteta's uh, managerial style, and I think those are those are positive by and large because we did have a very, very cliquey, toxic culture uh, that sort of stemmed from the back end of Wenger through Emery, and definitely up until sort of last January, and we managed. We've got basically bar. Klasnach, I sort of think all those players have, have left. Those are Mustafi, David Luiz, Socrates, Willian. Um, it's probably more, but by and large, they've all gone. What we we need is is a strong a strong leader in in the manager. But I am confused as to why he's just been banished from the squad. And my only reason behind that reasoning is maybe. He's just had a terrible response, and yeah, his mind, mentality, and his attitudes dropped, or something. And if that's the case, then it's completely justified. And I think what was interesting is last week, Grealish and Foden were dropped by Guardiola, and Guardiola just came out and look, they're different people, different, very you can tell, very different humans to Aubameyang in their character and their how they carry themselves and their attitudes and there are different stages of their career as well. But Grealish is a hundred million pound player, the most expensive player in Premier League history. He's got a bit of an attitude. Foden maybe is slightly different. He's always been quite sheltered and protected by Guardiola, but uh, but has had his issues in the past, especially on England duty with, what was it, with him and Greenwood got in trouble. And Guardiola just came out as I look, they were dropped for disciplinary reasons. That's it. I'm not going into it. Similar to Arteta. And it's clear that if you want a United squad and you want a squad that's going to prosper and succeed, everyone has to be on the same page. Everyone needs to be playing by the same rules. And whether it's your striker that's on 350 grand a week or if it's your third choice keeper on 10 grand a week, the law's the law and the rules are the rules. And I, I, I am encouraged by that because in the long term, that philosophy is the correct way to go about doing things and the era of exceptionalism for high earning footballers in the in sort of the ilk of Ozo was given a lot of free reign and we saw how that ended Pogba at United I mean Cantona was another one at United 
hopefully it's sort of trailing off and we're into a more sort of era of, you know, you play the, the letter of the law is what it is and every player abides by it. And that's how everyone's treated as an equal. And we succeed them together, we win together and we lose together. And and that that's that, that can only be a positive, I think, in the long term. Yeah, I think that's the driving force of my sort of, you know, it, it almost... Um, it almost overpowers my sadness for you know, the situation just because I think that this is probably on balance. Whether it's the right or wrong call, I think it sets uh, maybe an unpleasant line in the sand, but a line in the sand that shows that Arsenal are really, you know, you know, it sets an example, not of Aubameyang, but of, you know, the values and the, the way in which we're going to, behave as a team as you say and I think that's really important especially for these young players um, who are all coming through and sort of you know they're Arsenal boys and I think such a big thing of you know where this club has gone wrong over the last few years is the sort of accountability and 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 not having people being held accountable and you know having this collective sort of team spirit, I guess, and culture. So many words that we've heard so much um, during the time that Arteta's been in, in in charge. And look, like Arteta, you know, he's... He was... He was... Uh, I mean, the... Uh, he instigated, basically, Arteta... Uh, Aubameyang sort of staying on this, on this huge contract. He was very much in favour of it. He's played him in pretty much every single game, bar a few... Um, he's been supportive of Aubameyang's issues with his mother and all the rest of it. But I think maybe because of the Arsenal's, the Arsenal's, Arsenal's recent difficulties with dealing with players and, and leadership and, and culture and all the rest of it, I think maybe that's played into sort of why this has turned into such a big deal and also the reaction to it. But I also think maybe why Aubameyang's been you know, sidelined. I think uh, Arteta said in his press conference, you know, Aubameyang needs a bit of time. Like, we all need a bit of time for this to sort of blow over a bit. And yeah, you know, I don't know whether that's the right thing, but it doesn't seem, it seems to be the right thing at the moment because the team are playing well. And if that's the case, then it's the right call. Um, whether, you know, it is objectively the right call or not, I think you can judge it by performances on the pitch and whether players are playing well. And they are, so they're not being affected by it. And I think that's fine. That's a good thing. So hopefully, in an ideal world, goes off to AFCON, has a good time, comes back, you know, says sorry to everyone, not burdened by the captaincy, puts his maybe ego or upset feelings aside, is able to complete the sort of legacy that he was talking about when he signed the contract, because it would be a really sad thing if, you know, he was sold or just his, his Arsenal career was over because no one wants that to happen and we could still use an experienced goal scorer um who can you know be put the finishing touches on these sort of uh young players work in the final third and stuff like that so that's what i'm hoping i'm hoping he comes back and everyone's had time to reflect and it will go well but it may go completely other way um just let's touch on the captaincy just <laughs> for now because it's been uh, it's been a bit crazy over the last few years, um, you know, post Patrick Vieira's captaincy, you know, we we had Thierry Henry captain, um, 
and you know he left for Barcelona. William Gallas stripped of the captaincy mid-season. Cesc Fabregas um, was sort of made captain and then went to Barcelona. Thomas Vermaelen, decent captain, but got injured quite a lot. Van Persie left to go to uh, Man United. Arteta, decent captain. Mertesacker, decent captain, but both sort of were in and out of the team when they were appointed captain. Koscielny, again, forced uh, his own exit from the club. Xhaka, we all know what happened with him and now Aubameyang. I mean, it is kind of crazy to think of the captaincy and obviously a lot of people did the sort of classic arguments to say, oh, well, you know, we don't have a Tony Adams or like, that's what you need. You need a captain. And a lot of clubs sort of show that you can do it differently. You know, you said there, Man City's sort of club captain is maybe Fernandinho, but Ruben Diaz wears the armband and, you know, it seems as if they have quite a few leaders on the pitch. Um, But... Having said that, I think maybe in our personal scenario, because of the issues we've had with the captaincy over the last few years, because of the cultural issues, is perhaps having a captain who leads by example and is sort of embodying this project and culture actually quite an important thing for Arsenal to get right um, over the next sort of, I don't know, a few years. Um, I don't know what you make of where we might go with this captaincy from here. I think I think the captaincy is an interesting debate because you like on some level you just list all our recent captains and it's sort of it's an array of fantastic footballers but shitty endings but I don't think that necessarily sort of sums up how they were as captain I think you know Fabregas was captain for instance when he was very young and um, and was a great captain on the pitch but obviously then left to go to Barcelona Koscielny the way it ended with him now, looking back on it a few years later, it, for me, it doesn't tarnish what a fantastic servant for nine years he was for Arsenal when he was captain for sort of three or four of those. Vermaelens, another one, Mertzak and Ateta were really good captains by and large because they weren't playing every game. And I think you look around at the Premier League now, who's Chelsea's captain? Azpilicueta? I don't think he starts every game. I you know, Henderson and Milner at Liverpool, but Van Dijk's often captain. You've got West Ham, it's Mark Noble's captain on paper, but he's, he barely plays a minute of football in this day and age. So it's, it's Declan Rice or it's maybe someone as Fabianski or whoever. Man City is obviously the best example for Arsenal because no more, no coach more than, Arteta, than Guardiola has influenced Arteta's management style. And you can see that Guardiola's approach to captaincy is very holistic. He's got probably something akin to a leadership group or a senior leadership team. And that's Fernandinho and Ruben Diaz and De Bruyne. Kevin De Bruyne and Gundogan. Gundogan. Yeah. Maybe Carl Walker. And at the end of the day, if you're performing well and if you're winning games and that's the majority of your results the captaincy issue sort of falls into the background. And I think the fact that over the last five years, we've not been performing up to sort of Arsenal standards, the role of captaincy has sort of taken on a bigger role than it should have in this day and age. That era of one club man, that Tony Adams, Patrick Vieira, Steven Gerrard, Roy Keane, John Terry... 
Ledley King sort of captain just simply doesn't exist. There's so much money in the game. The game's so globalised. Players don't have the same amount of loyalty that they used to. It's far more transactory, transactionary. And as a result of that, the captaincy is also, it's sort of, here you go, you're captain today and this guy is going to be captain tomorrow and it's passed around. And it's also a way of including more people and making uh, more individuals feel like they hold value in a squad, especially if they're not playing week in, week out. So sort of it's a long-winded answer. Do I think we need a proper captain? No, I think we need a group of, of good captains. I think the whole squad mentally should see themselves as the captain. And if they can, then the armband is a material piece of fabric that in theory, if everyone possesses mentally, should it make a difference who physically has it, mm. whether it's Tierney or Lacazette or Rob Holding or you know, Elneny's captained Arsenal in the past. It's not... For me, it's not as significant. I think off the pitch, there's slightly more significance in terms of who represents Arsenal as a Premier League club in relation to the other 19 clubs. I mean, Jordan Henderson has done a very important job taking on that role of like the captain's captain, in a sense, and leading all 20 of the captains when it came to comes to player welfare. He spoke about recently or sort of donating money to the NHS or... Um, speaking up on behalf of what, what was happening around the lockdown, the first lockdown in March and April 2020 when player salaries were being called into question. And that's an important role. And I think it was Bellerin who was doing that for Arsenal. But I think it's, that's just emblematic of the fact that it, you can have multiple captains in a, in a squad. And if the squad's actually really focus on achieving something bigger than itself and there there is a, a toxicity within the team then who the captain is shouldn't really matter if if as i said if everyone just sees themselves as the captain mm. no i i agree with that and i think yeah i just think um given what's gone on for from arsenal point of view i think there is a not a more slightly more pressing demand for you know sort clarity but i guess you know everyone was thinking after a bamiyo strips cat see like oh like where is it going like who's getting it and i think you know given the fact that maybe lacazette is sort of next in line um and you know he's won the armband the last two games and and you've got granite jacker who obviously was stripped of the captaincy before um and both of those players are not necessarily sort of going to be here for the long run where do you sort of transfer that, you know, as you say, that almost metaphorical sort of, um, or material rather, um, leadership uh, definition, you know, by the armband, where does it go? Because it's still, I think it's, it still does resonate in terms of, you know, officially um, off the pitch, but also on the pitch, if you're wearing the armband, you know, you're, you're, you're the captain. Um so I think, yeah, the leadership group is fine. Um, but I'd be interested to see who is named, you know, the next official club captain of Arsenal, because I think it's it's sort of still a requirement. Um, and I think it would be important for so, sort of a young player who maybe has got a bit of experience under their belt and can, you know, sort of embody this, this new project going forward and sort of draw a line, hopefully, under the constant changes and captaincy strippings and, and giving 
your captaincy to players who want to leave and all that sort of stuff. I think it's important to maybe, you know, represent, yeah, represent a sort of change of, of narrative um, because, yeah, we've struggled with it over the last few years when you, as you say, maybe it shouldn't have been something that we've been struggling with, but maybe that's an in, uh, sort of indication of where we've struggled on and off the pitch in terms of leadership and performance and <laughs> everything basically over the last few years. So hopefully now this is the last of it. Um, and it would be a shame if Aubameyang was sort of, you know, the sort of uh, the last guy to fall foul of captaincy issues or the hoodoo or whatever it is. But hopefully now we've turned a corner and we can sort of focus on the positives on the pitch because there are plenty to 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 enjoy at the moment. Look, to round up today, let's just quickly look ahead to the Norwich game um, and then I guess the Wolves game as well, just because they're in such close proximity. Um how many points do you want from the two games? Six. It's got yeah. to be six points. It's, it's really simple, these two games. We're playing, what, Norwich, they're bottom of the league, and then we're playing Wolves, who, look, to be fair, they've had a decent season. They're playing under, well. under Bruno Large, the new manager. They're playing better football, not necessarily like in terms of the results, but just more entertaining football than they were under Nuno Spirito Santo. They've got a strong defence. They look very resilient. Jose Sars come in from Olympiacos and been great in goal. Cody is looking much better than the, than the defender he was a few months ago. They've obviously got a lot of attacking threat with Pudence and Adama Trope. And Huang and uh, Ralph Jimenez is obviously the obvious one. Jimenez will be coming back to the Emirates for the first time since his sort of skull fracture. So it might be quite emotional for him because over a year since that incident, and it's obviously been, had a massive impact on the, that club and Jimenez personally. So that, that will be interesting. But at the end of the day, we're at home. And unlike last season, we have a fantastic home record and we're playing really well at the Emirates. So I expect and I hope that we take six points from six which is really important because we have a tough January. We play Spurs away and we don't have a good record at their new stadium. We've lost every time we've gone there. We've got City at home on New Year's Day. And as much as I'd love us to sort of get something from that game, being realistically, you, no we can sort of run them off. Give them, their, give them their three goals and their clean sheet and be gone with you. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's just... We we got to be realistic. We're still not anywhere near at the level of competing with City and Liverpool and, and and maybe Chelsea. And so we've got to really be flat track bullies where we can and take points off the lower clubs. And yeah, if we can go through the Christmas period with sort of wins against Southampton, West Ham, basically fifteen points from Southampton, West Ham, Leeds, Norwich, and Wolves. That's an absolutely incredible return, along with beating Southampton 5-1 in, in, in a League Cup quarterfinal. That's like brilliant. Really, yeah. really, really. We can't fault it. You know, we can only beat who we're playing. Yeah. I, I guess there is, there's question marks over whether the game's going to go ahead. You know, I think the Wolves game's been postponed. That's from the Watford side. They've had the COVID issues, not Wolves. But we, we've not had a game postponed yet of COVID which makes me slightly wary that 
uh, any any game coming up could be. Hopefully, we get through Wolves and Norwich, and then the City game is the one that gets postponed. Yeah. But um, but you know, we've got to go all out and just try and get these these six points. I think you draw on a good point there. Just to finish up for today, you know, compared to last season, our home record's been better. But also, you know, against the likes of Villa, who we lost twice to, um, and Wolves, we lost twice to home and away. We beat Villa at home. We put that right. We need to beat Wolves at home. We need to put that right. Um, you know, we we um, we didn't beat Leeds away from home. We did that. I think we drew to Southampton at home. We beat them this year. Like, it's, it's really important to see those tangible signs of progress and get those wins on board in games that we should be winning. Like you say, if we win the games, we should. And don't win the games that we're not expected to. We'll end up in a decent position at the end of the season. I expect us to win the Norwich game. We've got to beat them. I think we can take, and really important to get that Leeds win because it was away from home and we can take that confidence into the Norwich game. Um, and Wolves will be a tough game. They've, you know, they've, uh, I think they just about lost to Liverpool. They drew to Chelsea, just about lost to City as well. So, you know, they've been playing quite well. Um, they're sort of eighth or something in the leagues. So they're quite high up. They've got good players. But um, yeah, I think six points or, you know, worse comes to worse. Four, you've got to win the Norwich game and then the Wolves game. We should be winning. But uh, a draw against a good Wolves team maybe wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. But I think, you know, six points is, is essential, I think. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you've got two games in two days, pretty much. Um, you're going to have to rotate the side. Um, Wolves aren't playing, so will be fresher, I think. Um, and we'll see sort of, hopefully we don't pick up too many injuries, but we will have to see some of the fringe players. Will we have COVID issues to deal with? It's all up in the air, but things are looking good as we go into these games. So I think we'll leave it there and I reckon we'll catch up, um, hopefully maybe even after those two games and we can we can sort of look at the before the new year, sort of um, the year of 2021 as a whole and season highs, season lows, all of the rest of it. So yeah, let's leave it there for today. A pleasure as always, Johnny. Um, I hope you hope you uh, continue to enjoy your stay in Jamaica and appreciate your time big time as always. No, thank you as always for having me on the pod. It's great to chat. It's always great to chat. Always great to chat. Um, but we'll catch you again soon. A quick reminder, you can find Johnny on Twitter at Johnny Rosen one and be sure to follow Football Transfer News on Facebook and Football Transfer News underscore official on Instagram. You can also find every episode of That Sums It All Up and regular features on uh, Fresh Air Sports Hub show on my Mixcloud page. That's www.mixcloud.com forward slash Alfie dash Steiner. As always, thanks for listening. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. Although we will speak to you before the New Year, so don't worry about that. Stay safe, most importantly. And until next time, take care and goodbye.